This morning's reading is from the first letter of the Thessalonians, and it's chapter 2, and the reading begins at verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you thanks for these words of Paul. And I pray that as you spoke to him when he wrote them, as you spoke to the Thessalonians when they heard them, so you would now speak to us by that same spirit. Amen. Amen. So far in this series, we've seen the great love that Paul had for the Christians in Thessalonica. And uh, we'll continue to see that throughout the rest of these two letters. It's kind of one of the main themes of these two letters. We've seen as well that the wholehearted way that the Thessalonians responded to the gospel with joy and with passion. And they didn't simply hear the words of the gospel, they put them into practice. They took them to heart and their lives were transformed. We've seen what it looks like to become a Christian, to convert, turning away from idols, serving the living God and waiting for Jesus' return. It sounds uh, really positive, doesn't it? Uh, in many ways, it is. The Thessalonians are, are a bit of a success story. They're the sort of church that, uh, had the Church of England been around then, their diocese would have put them in the annual report to show that it isn't so bad after all. But as we'll see today, being disciples of Jesus, following Jesus, learning from Jesus, comes with challenges as well. Now, I love the word welcome. It sort of has a, a roundness to it, if you know what I mean. It's sort of warmth and welcome. It sort of feels, I don't know, I, I don't know just in my head, that's how it feels. And uh, I hope we'll be doing lots of it this winter as we welcome people into this church building to get warm and to have food for fellowship as well, and hopefully maybe even to share um, our faith. Paul is thankful in chapter 1, verse 2, and he's thankful again at the start of our reading. Why? It says in verse 13, we also thank God continually because 
When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. That word, accepted, means welcomed. They didn't simply accept the word of God as true. They welcomed it into their lives. They flung the door wide open for God's word, like we might fling the door wide open to when a long-lost friend comes to visit. They embraced it as true and as powerful. I think Paul's not only talking about the gospel message here, but the, 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 the rest of the teaching that teaches us how to respond, how to live out that life that we have in Jesus, how to put it into practice. See, all that teaching and everything else that we have um, in the Bible is something special. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice that I was a little bit naughty then because I stopped halfway through the sentence in verse 13. Here it is in full. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul's making a a rather staggering claim there. He says that when he, a man, spoke to them in Thessalonica, It was actually God himself who was speaking to them through Paul. It's an astonishing thing to say. But I believe him. For that is exactly what the Bible is. And Paul had a special calling with the other apostles to write Scripture. God spoke to them through them in a particular way. Those of us who did his story course last week... You can still come along if you want to. It was great. We heard that the Bible is made up of 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a span of approximately 2,000 years in many different genres. The Bible is 100% written by human beings. Every single word in our Bibles was written by a person. Mostly men, sorry ladies. Possibly one or two women. And exactly the same way, when Paul spoke to the Thessalonians, every single word he spoke was 100% the words of a man. But those words and these words, even though they're translated, are also 100% God's word to us. The Holy Spirit was at work when they were written, as the Holy Spirit was at work when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica. And the Holy Spirit is at work when we read them and when, with fear and trembling, some of us preach them as the Holy Spirit was at work when the Thessalonians listened to what Paul was saying and responded. It's a double miracle. A double miracle inspired when written and inspired when read or heard. God was at work as Scripture was written and today, through his word, Paul says, God is at work in you who believe. Friends, the Bible is not only the most valuable thing the world affords, it is the most powerful. We can sometimes, can't we, shy away from it because it it challenges us to, to see things differently. We shy away from it because it demands God's people stand out from the crowd, live differently. We shy away from it because it invites us to live in what is sometimes a very strange new world of self-denial, of worship of something other than ourselves, 
other than our own desires. But the Christians in Thessalonica, and I hope we too today, know that the strange new world of the Bible is the world that God made us to live in. And I long for us to welcome the Bible as they did, as it actually is the Word of God, to fling wide the doors of our lives and our hearts and our minds, to welcome its truth, its authority, and its power into our daily lives. For then, everything will be all right. Nothing will go wrong, and our lives will be easy and free of trouble. Yes? No? Anyone feel like that's how their Christian life has been? I've been a Christian my whole life. I've had occasional weeks, maybe, where it's felt quite easy. Most of them haven't been. I don't know how. Well, I guess I probably do. But somehow, at some point, the lie creeps into the, to the minds and the hearts of Christian believers that says things should be easy. We might not put it like that. But when we face suffering or trouble or trials or difficulty or pain, we question our faith. We say, God, what are you up to? I don't know if that's a question you've ever asked. It's, I've asked myself that question many times in my life, quite a lot over the last few months. The next few months are going to be incredibly difficult for some as we struggle to pay our bills. Some people who've never struggled to pay their bills before will this winter. It'll be embarrassing Some of us will need to swallow our pride and admit we need help. Please do. Because we have it within us here to make sure that everyone is warm and fed this winter. So if you need help, please say. Nowhere in the Bible does God say or promise that his people will be immune from struggles in this world. In fact, one could argue that it's it's worse for God's people... Because as well as the normal struggles, we have with it persecutions, Jesus says. Persecution from accepting the gospel, living a countercultural life, looking different to everyone else. Let's look at verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Let's pause there. I wonder what comes to mind when you think about what it means to imitate a faithful church. To my mind, it involves a gathering a bit like this, with the word being taught and uh, preached, people singing and praying with all their hearts, sharing fellowship with one another, and then going out into the week to live as Christians wherever we are, in the workplace, at home, at school, in the supermarket, worshipping God in everything that we do, every day and in every way, blessing others as we are blessed. That's sort of the sort of thing I would say if someone said to me, what does a faithful church look like? But Paul doesn't say that. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. All those things I said are good things. They're important things for churches to be and do. But in this world, to imitate Christ means to suffer. After all, look at how the world treated him. Do we honestly think that it's going to be easier or better for us? See, Paul wasn't on a downer here. He's actually following Jesus' own teaching. 
This is from John chapter 15. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Friends, we Christians in 21st century UK, we're the odd ones out. All over the world, for 2,000 years, our Christian sisters and brothers have faced persecution. Many still do today. Jesus was arrested, falsely accused, beaten and crucified. Paul fled for his life several times, including from Thessalonica at night, let out through a hole in the wall so he could run away because they were going to kill him. He was beaten and left for dead. The Thessalonians were ridiculed, ostracized by their compatriots. Although we haven't known it in this country for many years, I would not be surprised if persecution is coming for Christians in the United Kingdom. If we stay faithful to Scripture, to the love and holiness that Jesus taught us, the world will hate us as it hated Jesus. That is the pattern of discipleship. Let's not kid ourselves that Jesus went around and everyone loved him. They hated him. That is the pattern of discipleship. But it is not all. Because Jesus' prayer didn't end there. He went on to say, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In this life, in this world, God's people will have trouble. Sorry, folks. That might be persecution because of our faith. It might be health issues or bereavement. It might be struggling to pay our bills this winter. It might be family problems, loneliness, abuse at home. But in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we can have peace. Peace not from pretending that everything is fine, but from trusting that the world doesn't have the last word. God does. And his word is Jesus. And Jesus has overcome the world. That's what Paul taught the Thessalonians. How do I know that? Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you. Why? For your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. They endured the suffering and persecution they faced, not by pretending it wasn't real, not by watering down what they believed so the world would accept them, but by fixing their eyes on Jesus, by trusting him and putting their faith in him. Confident that as he rose to life on the third day and ascended into heaven, so no matter what the valley of the shadow of death might bring, he is with us. Always. And he has already overcome. There's a hymn 
before the throne of God above that I'm sure many of you will know. And it has a little phrase in it which I love to sing. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Saviour and my God. It comes from Colossians chapter 3. Since then, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul wrote those words in a Roman prison on false charges. Bad things, even awful things, can and will happen. He ended up being executed. They will happen, even to God's people, even to the Apostle Paul. But ultimately, our life is hidden with Christ, kept safe, and nothing can separate us from him. The next two verses, verses 15 and 16, have been used, I'm afraid to say, to justify Christian anti-Semitism. It's perhaps not hard to see why. It's pretty brutal about the Jews. But it would be wrong to use the verses in that way. First of all, Paul himself was a Jew. The depth of feeling that comes through, the passion that you hear in those verses, are because he was abandoned and persecuted by his own people, his own family. Second, don't forget, Paul himself had treated the church in exactly the way that he was now being treated by those same people. Third, Paul was talking about specific people who were opposing and persecuting him, literally chasing him from town to town. He was not talking about the Jews as a whole. After all, in Romans chapters 9 to 11, he talks about the hope that there is for the Jews, for Israel. And finally, the Old Testament prophets often spoke about God's people in exactly this way. Jesus himself did. This is not about anti-Semitism. It is to teach us that those who oppose God will face the consequences eventually. As will we all. It's not that God is bloodthirsty. He simply gives us real responsibility that comes with real consequences. What God wants is for all of us to do what the Christians in Thessalonica did. Chapter 1, verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what God wants, and that's what he invites all of us to do. For then we will live in true freedom, and our life will be hid with Christ on high. There's, of course, much more to say about those verses, and you can talk to me about them afterwards if you want, or discuss it in your home groups this week if you're following the passage. Just so you know, by the way, if you're looking in the church Bibles, there are these useful little headings in bold. They aren't actually in the Bible. (laughs) The translators put these little headings in. So where it says Paul's longing to see the Thessalonians, that's a sort of translator's summary to, to help us structure the thing. It's not actually in the text itself. When the Bible's read, we shouldn't really read those headings, I guess. I don't think Pat did, did you? <laughs> Just suddenly realised I might have, you didn't. Pat did the right thing. Well done, Pat. <sighs> stick, to, stick to the script, Vicar. Paul ends this section of his letter with a heady mix of emotion. 
He loves mixing his metaphors. If you know Paul's letters well, you'll know how much he loves mixing his metaphors. He's Silas and Timothy in chapter 2. They've been like young children uh, in verse 7. A nursing mother, also in verse 7. A father in verse 11. And now they are orphaned uh, in verse 17. He describes, uh, look at that, uh, in verse 17, their intense longing. And that little word is actually um, usually used in the Bible to describe lust. But here it's used in a positive sense. That deep, from deep within ourselves, that longing to see someone that we love. That is how he felt. And how he made every effort to be reunited with his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He really loved them. And his time among them had been all too brief. And uh, he was now concerned that the church, that he hadn't had enough time among them to really establish them in the faith. But his way back to see them, verse 18, was blocked by Satan. Now, Paul doesn't explain himself. Sometimes in the Bible, you read something and you think, could you not have just like, added a little extra sentence in there just to explain it a little bit more? He doesn't do that here. He doesn't explain what he means, what it looked like for Satan to block the way. People have speculated it's probably not worth doing. But two things are important. First, Satan is real. Paul's not using a metaphor here. Satan is real, and he has real power to oppose and block God's people, even the Apostle Paul. We are in a fight, my friends. And the more faithful we are to Jesus, the more we grow in discipleship, the more opposition we will face from people and from Satan. The second thing, though, is Satan has real power, but he has already lost. On the cross, Jesus defeated all the powers of death and evil. So when Paul says in verse 19, what is our hope? It's not a weak British, oh, well, I hope so, when we actually mean no. You ever done that? A few little wry grins. Oh, yes, I hope to come later. No, you're not. <laughs> Paul's hope is a strong confidence and assurance in a future that is assured because of what Jesus has already done. He's already done it. He's already won the victory. The future is assured. Jesus has won the victory. So the crown in verse 19 that Paul talks about, it's nothing to do with royalty. It's not one of those, well, it might, I kind of feel like it might be quite fun to put, you know, the, the crown that, 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 that King Charles is going to be crowned with. It looks kind of fun to, you know, put it on. I don't know. Is that just me? No? Just me? Hey, it looked rather nice. It's nothing like that. It's not that sort of crown at all. It's, uh, it, the word really means wreath, and it's that often laurel wreath that was put on the victor in the games. So it's not about royalty, it's about victory. A victory that has been won by Jesus for us. Hallelujah. So we need to keep going and not give up. So one day we will receive that crown, that wreath which Jesus has won for us. We need to stand firm in faith, abounding in love, maturing in holiness. We need to support and encourage one another 
when things are hard and tough, because they are and will be. We need to stand and fight against the devil's schemes. It's in that famous passage in Ephesians 6. The one weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is, verse 13, at work in you who believe. Friends, troubles and trials will come. We will face opposition and difficulty. But the victory Jesus won for us can never be taken away. Our hope, our joy, our crown, our glory are assured and secure in Jesus. And in Jesus alone. All other ground is sinking sand. And all of that will be ours when he comes. And so we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.